0: Aren't we glad Hallett's back? Amen. And uh, Abby is playing her new cello, so we're thankful for that. (laughs) (laughs) The past several days, it seems that every newscast uh, on television or radio has always focused on two events the weather and the financial condition of our nation. Not only the newscast, but it seems that almost every conversation, not every, but almost every conversation I've had with people this past week, it seems these topics have always been present. The weather and the financial condition of our nation. When we think about the financial crisis of our nation and you listen to people, you have a variety of attitudes that are expressed all the way from anger on one hand, despair on the other, and some say, well, this is America, it'll all work out, and nothing really to worry about. But as you talk with people, you hear some expressing fear, well, will I get my Social Security check? Some expressed anger over the possibility that the troops would not receive their paycheck. some have expressed concern over their retirement funds. and There's no denying that our nation still is in trouble financially. And of course, for some of us here, it's very personal. You've lost your jobs. And some of you are trying and trying and trying and can't even find jobs. Another topic of conversation that has been in many conversations this past week has to do with the moral condition of our nation, the sexually explicit television programs that just seem to abound everywhere, the availability of pornography that exists on our computers, and how far the nation has fallen spiritually. You know, this year is the 300th anniversary of the King James version of the Bible been a lot of articles written and I for the first time was aware of the fact that the first major book published in the United States after we were firmly established as a nation was the King James Bible and it was published by under the sponsorship of Congress. Congress sponsored it and then explained why they said we're sponsoring the printing of this version of the Bible for the use in the schoolroom, and we urge the citizens of our nation to read it for the spiritual and moral education of our country. Uh, This past week, various ones have been talking about a, a video that is being displayed on the Internet in which David Barton has been taking people on this video of a tour of the national capital. And one thing he points out is that the most secular Of all of our presidents, Thomas Jefferson established a church in the nation's capital. The church first met December fourth, 1800, and Jefferson attended services there every Sunday. He thought that the a cappella singing needed some help, so he ordered the Marine Band to show up every Sunday as the worship team and uh, uh, enhance the services that took place. That church uh, met in the Capitol building for about a hundred years. It became the largest church in America. By 1857, its attendance had run 2,000 people. It was the first megachurch in the United States. Not only that congregation, but three other churches also met simultaneously in the Capitol building. the Capitol Hill Presbyterian, the uh, Congregational Church of Washington, and the First Presbyterian Church of Washington. So you look at all of that, and then we today see a nation that seems to be doing everything it can to say that we must be a secular state, and we see the moral direction of our country. And so in conversation after conversation, as these things come forth, we hear despair, we hear helplessness, And then to top it all off, this past week, we learned that uh, even though we're saying that we must not use tax dollars to support religion, our State Department is spending billions of dollars refurbishing mosques in 27 nations. One of these is being erected where the uh, Arabian chief first placed his tent in Egypt. I thought it was interesting, Egypt today. That mosque is being built there, and this is where the man placed his tent before he began his campaign against the Christians. He made the Coptic language illegal. He insisted that everyone in Egypt speak Arabic and in time cut out the tongues of all who continued to speak the Coptic language and did all that he could to destroy Christianity. Our State Department is funding the building, the rebuilding, the refurbishing of the mosque that was erected on that site. How strange (laughs) that we have a nation that says we cannot use tax dollars for religious purposes, and yet billions are being spent to do that in 27 nations of the world. And so we look at these things, and we're, we're very much disturbed, people are, conversations, almost everyone you talk to has a sense of hopelessness and helplessness and crazy times. What are we doing? Some have said, well, you know, all of the things that are happening in the weather, the uh, Katrina, the heat wave, and yes, even the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, all these are signs of God's judgment on our nation. I don't know whether or not that's true, but some have that view. Yesterday, in response to a call from Governor Perry, a prayer meeting was held in Houston in in an amphitheater. 30,000 people attended. Now, frankly, I cannot agree with the view that some of the groups a whole that sponsored that, nor even some of the agenda presented there, but who can disagree with 30,000 people meeting to pray for our nation? Well, as I prayed this past week, seeking the will of God, desperately seeking the will of God for this morning, I sense that the thing God would have me do today is talk about what's on everyone's mind and discuss what perspective we as Christians should have in times like these. We're going to do that today, but first we need to acknowledge some very basic truths that must underlie our thinking. First of all, in times like these, we need to remember that all of human history history, past, present, and future, is the record of the human races moving down the pathway toward the fulfillment of God's purposes for our existence. We need to remember the underlying truth, that the universe and everything in it is the product of God's hand, and He is the possessor of it all. When the Ephraimite woman, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, was anguishing in her heart because she had no children. She had been married for several years. She was mocked because she was childless. And she sought God and prayed passionately. And God answered her prayer a year later after that moment in the temple. She gave birth to a boy who became Samuel the prophet. And she burst forth into a wonderful hymn of praise unto God. And in that praise she said this, He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are Jehovah's. And he set the world on them, using the image of one who would build a temple. David in Psalm 24 echoed Hannah's words when he said, The earth is Jehovah's, and all they that dwell therein. Now, lest we think these are the words of an emotional woman and a passionate poet, hard-headed Paul quoted verbatim that 24th Psalm in Hebrews 10.26, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains. The earth, everyone who dwells in it, all the universe belongs to God. And he is moving humanity toward a destiny that is his ultimate purpose for the existence of the human race. Now ultimately as we read God's word that means that out of all of humanity God has chosen certain ones who will be his people and these will spend eternity with him. We see displayed that desire of God to have those who are made in his image at least some of those who are made in his image to dwell with him in eternity he began that path in a very clear and obvious way first when he called abraham later when he narrowed it to abraham's grandson jacob and then when the nation of israel was developed deuteronomy 14:2 speaking of the jewish people whom god was going to use to accomplish that You are a holy people to Jehovah your God. Jehovah has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And so for many centuries, the Jewish people were God's chosen people, chosen out of all of the races in the earth. His possession, a part of His plan, as he was moving the human race toward accomplishing his ultimate purpose for humanity. Later, after Jesus Christ died upon the cross, resurrected and was ascended, and the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, some months later, God not only said, Now are the Jewish people my people, but all of every nation who will accept Jesus as Savior. And so in Acts 15... When there was controversy over whether or not anyone other than a Jew could be one of God's chosen people, Paul, Barnabas, Peter himself spoke of the work of God. And finally, James wrote or spoke this, Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So not only Jews, But among Gentiles, those who were called of God, there would be some who would be a part of that people for his name. Paul wrote in Titus 2, He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And Peter, quoting Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, said but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, speaking of those who have given themselves to Jesus Christ. As we look to the very last book of the Bible, we see the fulfillment of God's desire for the human race. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Seven nine. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Here we see, God's ultimate purpose for humanity, that out of the human race, from every nation, there would be those who would dwell with him in that everlasting home. Revelation chapter 20 pictures the great judgment day, and some of it is quite a striking and disturbing scene. And then in Revelation 21 we have this beautiful picture of God's ultimate destination for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them. They shall be His people. God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Isn't it going to be wonderful when we get there what that existence is going to be like out of sinful humanity? Sinful humanity that has no right to claim a place in God's presence God will draw out individuals into his kingdom that will be his possession, his companions for eternity. That is the purpose and the destiny toward which God is moving to humanity. Now, we're living in an age which began with Pentecost that will end when Jesus Christ comes. Remember, Jesus, says he was preparing to say goodbye to various groups of apostles, gave them the great commission, go preach the gospel, I'll be with you to the end of the age. It's interesting when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives and it talked about the time when he said, look at all of these stones in these temples, a day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. And the apostles looked at that and they were puzzled, how can this be? And so they finally said, tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, they thought they were asking one question, but they really had asked three. When will these things be, which happened when, in 70 A.D.? What will be the sign of your coming, question two? And what will be the end of the age, question three? And so in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus answered all three questions. Twenty four fourteen. Jesus said, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We're living in an age in which God, who controls the universe, who owns everything, in which God is gathering from all nations a company of people who will dwell with him In New Jerusalem. That's one of the underlying truths that in times like these we must never forget as we observe the activities and the things that transpire before us and hear about on our newscasts. Number two, in times like these, we must not forget that God maneuvers nations and God raises up. And God puts down rulers in order to achieve his end game. When you read the book of Daniel, and if you read it thoughtfully, you cannot avoid pondering the prophecies that the Holy Spirit gave Daniel. Now, some of these clearly have already been fulfilled. And you can identify in history yes, this happened. At Yes, this happened, and yes, this happened. We can see these things already fulfilled in history as they were prophesied in Daniel. But some have yet to come to pass. And one thing Daniel was very clear about in his prophecies and his proclamations was this. It is God who raises up rulers. It is God who puts down rulers. He said this to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2.21, It is he who changes the time and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. In Daniel 4.17, we find a prophecy given. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. The decision is a command of the Holy One in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, Bestows it on whom he wishes, sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, Nebuchadnezzar heard these prophecies from Daniel. At one point, Nebuchadnezzar became very haughty, even at times wanting to apply to himself the label King of Kings. Jehovah was using Nebuchadnezzar as a part of his redemptive purpose. And Jehovah chose to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel came with this prophecy. You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it, on whomever he wishes. That did come true. Nebuchadnezzar became temporarily insane. He lived outdoors, and the record says that the dew of the earth was on him in the morning. He ate grass like an ox. His fingernails became long. His hair was long. He finally came back to himself and acknowledged that God is God. Nebuchadnezzar was not God. Psalm 75, 6 and 7, not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is a judge. He puts one down and exalts another. As we look at the governments of the world and the rulers of the world who are determined, it seems, to shake off the shackles, of God's control. For me, I always think of Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers apart. Cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. laughs. Jehovah scoffs at them. And looking back, we can see the hand of God as he raised up Egypt. And Egypt provided the place where the Jewish family became a Jewish nation. Next, the Assyrians came on the scene. And then the Babylonians. And then the Persians. And then the Greeks. And then the Romans. And each of these had an important part to play in what God was doing, moving humanity toward his destination. We've spoken before of the way God maneuvered the Greeks and Romans. Alexander the Great, a nobody, came to power in Greece, which at that time was not Greece. It was just a conglomeration of various city-states. His father, Philip, had fought and united some of these, and then Alexander brought them together and began to move to the east nation after nation, conquering all the Mediterranean, all the way going down into India, even, and coming back. And every place he went, he was determined to turn the world over into a Greek world. The Greek language was implanted every place he went. Greek culture was planted every place he went. And just before he got back home, he died, a young man. His kingdom was divided among three. And these vied for power. They, none was able to gain dominance. And then on the scene came the Romans. The Romans began to defeat nation after nation after nation. And when they were finished, there was in the Mediterranean world a language that could have been understood in any town in any city. And there was a world that was controlled by Roman law. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the gospel was unleashed, The gospel was unleashed on a world where anyone could go anywhere and preach in Greek and be understood. You could travel in safety because of the Roman roads, because of Roman law. There were no boundaries to cross, and the gospel exploded partly because of what had happened with Alexander the Great and the Roman conquerors. God moves the nations to accomplish his purpose You know, as I thought in my own life about seeing people raised up and put down, sometimes in a striking way, let me tell you a personal story. On November 2nd, 1948, the Garrett family, and really virtually the whole city of Muskogee, went to bed mourning, sorrow defeated, bewildered. Let me tell you why. The city of Muskogee was a strong Democrat city. Almost everyone was a Democrat. I met my first Republican that I remember when I was 18 years old working for the railroad. There was one man in the Muskogee terminal who was a Republican. His last name was Bohannon. Hannon. He was a skinned, flinty old guy. He, nobody got along with him. He carried, I remember, a Buckeye in his pocket to keep away his arthritis. Interesting man. That was the first Republican I'd ever met that I remember. When I was a teenager, my uncle came to me and he said, Now, Jim, you're old enough now to know this about your dad. I need to tell you, don't tell anybody else, but you're a son you need to know. Well, I was expecting to hear some moral failure of my dad, some terrible thing he'd done. He said, When your dad lived in Kansas, he registered as a Republican. Now, Barbara and I got married when I was 18; she was 17. We were too young to vote. And then, after uh, four years, we went off to Ohio, where I went to college. We were there seven and a half years. We came back in 1959. The presidential election was 1960, and we'd been exposed to Republicans in Ohio. So we thought, well, here comes the election. We've never registered. We've never voted. I wonder. Which should we be? <laughs> we began to evaluate this is what this party philosophy is and this party. Now, Barbara made the mistake one day when she's at her dad's house of saying, Jim and I are going for the first time to register, and we're trying to decide whether to register as Democrat or Republican. He exploded Barbara, you were raised a Democrat. So that's the background <laughs> in which I grew up. And so on November 2nd, 1948, (laughs) Muscogee went to bed in mourning and sorrow because the Democrat Party had been split three ways. Harry Truman, the incumbent, had fallen out of favor. One thing, he had come out very strong for civil rights. He had integrated the armed forces, and the southern part of the Democrat Party pulled away from him. Um, The man who had been the vice president under uh, Roosevelt, who also had been the Secretary of Agriculture, he also had been the Secretary of Commerce, Henry Wallace, began to disagree with Truman. He pulled away and formed the Progressive Party. Strom Thurmond, reflecting the southern part of the Democrat Party, formed the Dixiecrats, and the southern states were loyal to him. And so the Democrat Party was divided between the Progressive Party, the Dixiecrats, and the Democrats, of whom Truman did become uh, the candidate. Truman not only was unpopular because of his stand on civil rights, but less than an hour after Israel was declared a nation, he recognized Israel. Now, George Marshall, who was the Secretary of State, strongly opposed him in that as well as James Forrestal, the Secretary of Defense, and many in the Democrat Party were totally opposed to what Truman had done. So he really was a very weak man. He was opposed by Thomas E. Dewey, the popular candidate from New York, a charismatic individual, and the Republicans were all united behind Dewey. So as the news people began to look at this, Fragmented Democrat Party split three ways. They began to take the polls, and poll after poll after poll showed that Dewey was going to win in a landslide. There was no hope for Truman. November 2nd, staying up late, listening to the radio, Dewey is winning by a landslide. Chicago Tribune even came out with an early edition that said, "Dewey defeats Truman." So Muskogee went to bed, <laughs> sorrow, defeated, bewildered, and got up the next morning to read the Muskoly, Muskogee Daily Phoenix. The headline said, "Truman defeats Dewey." <laughs> the pollster said, "How could that be?" <laughs> Chicago Tribune was embarrassed. The newscasters were bewildered. And it's interesting, I've read studies to explain how did they all get it wrong, but there's one answer. God raised up Truman. Now that doesn't mean God's a Democrat or Republican because sometimes one wins and sometimes another. But it is God who raises up. It is God who puts down... We need to remember that. Why is one person elected and not? Why do the nations of the world, Israel, Egypt, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, so on, why do they have the governments they have? Why are these nations ebbing and flowing? Why all the turmoil right now in Africa? It's all a part of God's plan to move toward the ultimate destiny that he has for mankind. Now, you know, when we think about that, there are just all kinds of questions that arise, don't there? All kinds of questions. How can this, what about this, what about that? I don't know. (laughs) As a matter of fact, that's the right attitude. The main, the lesson that comes out of Job is this, don't understand me. Trust me. And I must trust God to fulfill His purpose, not to see that my life will always be easy, not to see that I will avoid persecution. matter of fact, Jesus said no. He said, if you who are my disciples, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, and you're going to be killed. I don't understand why, Uh, A couple of months ago, there was in Iraq a particular church leader that baptized 15 people. And within a month, 11 had been assassinated because they had been converted to Christianity. I don't understand that. (laughs) But I don't have to understand it. Somehow, it's all a part of God's purpose. As a matter of fact, we've mentioned that in the Revelation, we see the picture of those people who had been slain, and they're saying to Jesus, how long, how long, how long are you going to wait to do something? And he said, I'm not going to do anything until everybody who has been appointed to die for me has died. Is, does God have a goal of martyrdom? I don't know exactly how to grasp all of that, but it's not my place to understand. It's my place to trust God that he will fulfill his purpose for humanity. So where does that leave us today? Well, in times like these, it's very important for the church corporately and for us as individual Christians to remember our role. Our first role is to believe our beliefs. Now, that's, that's something that's important. Believe our beliefs. During World War II, as various reports would come of atrocities, I remember sitting in church one day and heard about the Japanese soldiers who had come into a particular Philippine village. And they came into a church service, and they lined the people up and said, you who want to stay Christians, we're going to kill you, everybody else leave. They did it. And I remember sitting as a teenager, as I was in World War II, wondering, dear God, if an army came into this church service this morning while I'm sitting here and said, we're going to machine gun every one of you unless you deny Jesus and walk away, what would I do? More than once I've pondered that in life because now as never before, it seems. That's the fate of our brothers and sisters in the world. That may be our fate someday. But whether it is or not, we're constantly intimidated. We're constantly intimidated. It is important that we believe our beliefs so strongly that whatever the price to pay, we will pay it. In times like these, we need to remember that we are commissioned to preach the gospel. The Great Commission should be the underlying force, principle of our life. Whatever we do, it may not outwardly seem that's what it's pointed to, but some way it must connect with taking the gospel to those who do not know it. We must contend for the truth. Paul said that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. And today there are so many bizarre things going about in the world. The church must never forget that one of our roles is to be a pillar and foundation for the truth. We must live lives of agape love. Jesus said, even as I have loved you, so I should love one another. That is one of the, the number one outstanding mark of a Christian is he is a slave of Jesus. The number two is he displays the love of Christ for all who are about him. Prosperous, needy, kings and the poor, we should be vessels of love to all who are about us. We need to do what we can to maintain peace and stability in society. Remember the election when it was between Gore and Bush, and finally the Supreme Court made a decision? You know what would have happened in much of the world? People would have taken to the streets, it had been a riot. But in America responded to law. Sometimes as passions get high enough, <laughs> instability takes place, and that's a horrible thing once that happens in a culture. Therefore, we're urged in Romans 13 1 and following, obey the law, pay the taxes. <laughs> try to do everything you can to keep peace and stability in the culture, in the society. Same exhortation in Titus three one and first Peter three twenty-one or two thirteen rather. We're told to pray for those in places of power. Now, we may have a president right now that some of you disagree with. But let me tell you, if you're going to obey God, you're praying for the man. And the next one who's elected, some others don't agree with. We had a, I remember when President Bush was president, Barbara and I were in Muskogee, and one of the relatives said, oh, it's horrible, I don't even have a president. Yes, you do, pray for him. You know, whether you agree with him or not. Pray for the man. That's God's will. Where possible, we need to exert an influence on how society treats the less fortunate. Proverbs 10, 11, and 12 is a rebuke for those who didn't stand in the way of the innocent people being taken to slaughter. Compassion in our culture is so important. And certainly if one of us is in a place of influence where we might set the direction of society, we need to do so as a slave of the king, don't we? Whether one's a congressman, a senator, a president, a city councilman, a believer's very heart should say, God, what do you want done here? Not what does my constituency want or what do I want, but God, what do you want? And certainly, we need to exercise in these times, times like these. We need to exercise stewardship of our time, of our money, and certainly our vote. You know, in America, we have a wonderful, wonderful privilege and a horrible responsibility. The privilege of voting as to who will govern us but a horrible responsibility to do it prayerfully and before God. I wonder what kind of a nation we'd have if every Christian decided to vote sometime. Uh, I pray God's will would be done because Christians wouldn't be voting whims, but seeking to vote God's will. Now, None of the circumstances that we face in times like these change who we are change what we're to do how we're to live purpose for our existence nor the identity of the one who controls the universe I'm thankful that in times like these God is God Father thank you that you do not look the other way we thank you for that ultimate purpose We long for that day when you say it's over, come home. Through Jesus, amen.